Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Reese Bowen's books sell in the millions around the world. She enjoys popular and critical acclaim for both her royal spineless mysteries and her best-selling historical fiction. But she says it's the surprising, heartwarming feedback she gets from her readers that means the most to her. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Reese talks about the unexpected rewards of being a top international author, the stories she hears of how her books have helped readers through the loneliness of pandemic lockdown and other dire emergencies. Like the woman in Texas who sat in her car watching floodwaters destroy her house listening to a Reese Bowen audiobook for comfort. And on a personal note, I can attest to Reese's kindness. We'd done a whole 30 minutes of our interview before I noticed I'd failed to push the record button. I confessed to her immediately of my stupidity and Reese generously agreed to repeat the whole thing over again right away. We're getting to that second interview in just a minute, but before we do, just a reminder, the links to everything we talk about today, Reese's books, the social media and website can be found on thejoysofbingereading.com in the show notes for this episode. But now, here's Reese. Welcome to the show, Reese, second time round. It's so good of you to be here. Hi, Jenny. Good to see you again. Yes, it is again because we spoke in May 2018 last when you had a, a Royal Spinus story out about weddings and you're still going strong on your, on your Royal Spinus. You've got the late Mrs. Summers out this year, as well as one of, of your new historical mysteries, Above the Bay of Angels. Tell me, how have you been faring during the pandemic? Well, it's been very scary here, I think, because you've been doing so well in New Zealand, and I'm very, very envious of what you've been doing. And everybody seems to be on board and pulling together to make, to bring this thing to an end, which we don't have here. So I've been pretty, we've been very good about isolating and wearing masks and seeing people outside at distance only. So I've been doing everything one's supposed to do, but it's kind of hard to be stuck at home most of the time. And my daughter the other day said, well, I went to the store and I said, store, what is this word? I do not know what it means, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, just to clarify for listeners, you are in California. So you're speaking from California, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, California has been doing quite well, but the rest of the United States has been doing really horribly. And, you know, we still have cases mounting all the time, which is very sad. Mm. Mm. When we last talked, I referred to the wedding and we had a bit of a laugh because Megan was about to marry Prince Harry at that time and we joked that your wedding's book was likely to get a little bit of a boost. Who could have seen that just two years later they wouldn't even be considered royals any longer? I think think it's, it's something I certainly didn't see coming. I think everybody was so excited when they married because everybody was saying, oh, now we can really relate to the royals because she's multicultural, she's one of us, she's fun, she's 
And then suddenly everything went wrong. And I, I don't really know what it was, whether she really didn't take into account what being a royal meant, whether she liked the idea of being a royal, but then when the reality struck, she realized that she wouldn't have one minute of freedom. Who knows? It's, it's very sad because I think he's given up more than he ever intended to give up. You know, I think he was only, he was not the heir, he was the spare, as they say. But he, you know, it really meant a lot to him, his army connections and his military connections and all the, all the charities that he did connected with the military. And he's had to give all those up. So I don't know if he's regretting it now or... Um, I, I don't know what she wanted either, whether she just wanted the fame. It's, it's kind of hard because uh, I, I know someone who was connected to her before and, and knew her quite well, and she was lovely, according to them. You know, So I can't really judge, but I feel sorry for them now because I think they're stuck in L.A. In a, in a life that probably they don't want. Yeah. We've talked about the royal spinous mysteries, and they are very relevant to this conversation because your heroine, Georgiana is a penniless aristocrat who's 35th in the line for the throne of England, but she's also flat broke and struggling to survive in the Great Depression. And the books poke gentle fun at the British class system and the way that the upper classes govern. Georgiana, how did you sort of find her? How did she come together? And was she the first thing that you ever wrote? She came really because I'd been doing two other series, Constable Evans series set in Wales, contemporary, and then I did the Molly Murphy series, which is about um, a young Irish immigrant in New York at the turn of the 20th century. But my publisher kept saying to me, we can't really break you out unless you write as a big, dark, standalone novel. So I kept thinking, oh, God, what's a standalone novel? Oh, yeah, child molesters, serial killers, and then I thought, wait, do I want to spend six months in darkness with these people? I thought, no, I don't. What would be the silliest, most unlikely sleuth I could come up with? And I thought, oh, how about if she was royal? Okay, she's royal, but she's penniless. And it has to be the 1930s, because what a fun time that was, poised between two world wars with um, all these, you know, Mrs. Simpson and the Prince of Wales and Noel Coward and, and Hitler, all, all these extreme and wonderful stories to tell. So I just sat down and I started writing almost stream of consciousness in Georgiana's uh, own voice. And I sent it off to my agent and she said, oh, oh, this is such fun. We have to do this. We sent it off to my editor who went, no, 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 this wasn't what we wanted at all. So my agent sent it out to bids elsewhere and it was bought by somebody else and it started doing really well. So the first publisher had to sort of grudgingly, they'd say, well, in that <clears throat> other series. So it's been delightful for me to see it doing so well because it's, you know, I, I was right to start with. So, And it's a lot of fun to write them because, you know, they're funny and they're poking gentle fun at the British class system. And uh, so they're very therapeutic to write, especially in tough times like this. Mm. So did you stay with that second publisher or, or do you now have two publishers? I actually now have three publishers. I, I've, uh, the first one with the Molly Murphy series has done the Molly Murphy series up to now, and I may be going back to Molly fairly soon. I have Penguin does the Royal Spinus series, but then my standalones are done with Lake Union, which is Amazon's sort of big book publishing house. So mm. I, I've got three different publishers, which is very nice because um, I think they all have to work hard to please me because, because you know, I've got three of them. 
<laughs> That's a great place to be in, yes. We, we were talking about Georgie. Now, you have quite an insight into way that, in the way that the upper class system works in Britain because you have family connections that go way back. Tell us a little bit about how your insight in that area might have developed. Yeah, I, I married, my husband's family is, is upper class and goes way back and has royal connections, way, several royal connections way back and used to own the stately home called Sutton Place and still has a couple of lovely houses. So I live in California. So when I'm over there, I think I'm very good as an observer. If I lived in England, I might take all this for, for granted, but I love listening to them talk and someone would say, do you remember that joke we used to play on the butler? And I sort of scribble it down in my little notebook. So I, I noticed that and they're, they're still, there's still this class feeling in England, like someone will say, oh, well, I met this, this man the other day who does so-and-so. And immediately someone else will say, where did he go to school? And that's exactly putting him in a box. You know, if he went to the right school, you can talk to him. If he didn't, you can't talk to him. It seems very silly to me living in California, but that's still how it is in England. And, you know, of course, with William uh, and Kate, before they became engaged, they broke it off because her mother was deemed too common because she used the word toilet instead of lavatory. And it was huge. It was huge in England. They had like these huge newspaper headlines saying toilet gate. And it almost, it almost broke them up. But luckily, they got back together again. But it just shows you it's very important in England. So, you know, John's family has the still has the, the cousins with silly nicknames, really does have a cousin called Fig, another one called Dude, and a very distinguished older lady called Puff. So... Um, <laughs> It's quite fun to when I'm over there and someone says, this is Puff coming over and they, they take it for granted. And it seems really funny to me. So I enjoy putting these things in books. It's a little bit like Downton Abbey, isn't it? Why do you think that that period and, and the class system is so popular with the ordinary folk? Oh, I think because it's something that we can't have, you know. I think Downton Abbey, the lovely costumes and the fact that the servants to do everything for you in a hundred bedrooms, it's sort of, it's almost like, you know, waking up and find you've turned into Cinderella or something. It's this, it's the sort of thing, it's so different from our life that you think it must be very glamorous. Um, I think the same with the royals, that we're fascinated with the royals because their life is almost a fairy tale compared with ours. So, you know, especially in America and, New, well, um, New Zealand's got a queen, you're lucky. But in America, you know, we, we, don't have a, we don't have royals. So I think we waste an awful lot of energy on pomp and circumstance because we love that. And I think in our hearts, we'd really love a royal too. So we're fascinated with it. When you said that, I jokingly thought, you've got Kim Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we also have Mr. Trump, I think, who'd like to be crowned something. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Look, your latest historic fiction, in more recent years, you've turned your hand to doing these standalone historicals, and you've had tremendous success with those, both uh, sales-wise and with critical acclaim. But mainly they have been... World War One and World War Two, that period. But this one, the newest one, called Above the Bay of Angels, it's another international bestseller and it's going back to Queen Victoria's time. Tell us why you chose to give the World War period a rest and go back a, a couple of generations. Well, you know, I didn't intend to write about Queen Victoria. I like writing 
I think both World War I and World War II, you've got this heightened emotion, heightened danger, and of course, terrible tragedies and great bravery. So you've got all the makings of so many good stories. But I, I was in Nice on vacation once, and we were up on a hill, and we saw this beautiful white building up there. And there was a gardener working in the garden, and I said to him, is this a hotel? And he said, no, madame. It used to be a hotel, but now it's apartments. He said, it was a hotel that was built for your queen. And I said, oh, Queen Elizabeth. And he went, no, no, madame, Queen Victoria. I hadn't known until then that Queen Victoria used to spend, in her later years, she used to go there for her winters and spend three months or so in the south of France. And they built this beautiful hotel for her. They gave her a whole wing to herself. And she would come down from England on her private train bringing everything with her, all her maids, her footmen, her ladies-in-waiting, all her own cooks, and all her bedroom furniture. And, um, uh, oh, added to this, a regiment of Highland Pipers. And then she would say, I don't want anybody to know I'm the Queen. You ought to call me Lady Balmoral. Well, of course, you come on your own train with a regiment of Highland Pipers. It's probably a dead giveaway. <laughs> so I thought, this is very interesting. And I started looking into it. And I thought, I'd really like to write about this. And then something struck me and I thought, this is someone who's coming to a big, beautiful French hotel and she's bringing her own cooks. What was she thinking of? You know, someone, someone's going to make some boring English dish when she could have French cuisine. So I started thinking some more. And of course, the more I looked into it, I found there were scandals and there was an assassination attempt and things. And I thought, oh, I have to put all this into a book. And so I made my heroine be a young girl of good family who has become, come down in the world and has become a cook for Queen Victoria and is taken to the south of France with her where all these dangerous things happen. So it was really fun book to write. I had to go back to Nice naturally for a summer and do lots more research there, suffering for my craft every day when I tried out the new bistro. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. And no lesser novelist than Louise Penny has praised the book as being warm and gripping and full of mystery and excitement. I know that Louise is the most wonderful novelist herself, but I gather she is also a good friend. She is. She's a very close friend of mine, and we live very far apart, but we keep in touch through email mostly, but we usually see each other in the summer in London. She rents a flat there, and we go over, and we have a wonderful time where we laugh all the time. And of course, this year, that wasn't possible. She went to London, but I didn't. I've been stuck here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you've mentioned, Isabella in Above the Bay of Angels is a trainee chef, and the food, the food there's a lot of food in this book, as there is in your other book. Uh, there's details about the meals that the royals ate and what Queen Victoria's particular likes and dislikes were. Was that fun to research? How did you go about that? I love, funny, I love writing about food and I love researching food. People have said to me so often, oh, are you a keen chef yourself? No, no. I lo I'd love someone else to cook my meals. I'd actually like Mrs. Patmore from Downton Abbey to produce my meals for me. <laughs> I, do, I do like to eat well and I like good food. And also for this book, I found the recipe book put out by one of Queen Victoria's personal chefs. So I know exactly what she liked and what she ate for her meals. And you would not believe some of the things that she used to eat. You know, there really was a, a, a blackbird pie with four and 20 blackbirds in it and things like that that you just wouldn't think of and so elaborate I mean just amazingly awfully elaborate and, and awful in the true sense of the word too and so that that was kind of fun to research that um, and to put it into the books. 
Yeah. I don't suppose that book is online. It is. It is. And it's if you go under, I think, go on, under Queen Victoria's Chef, and I can't remember what it's called, but it, it will come out. He's got an Italian name, which will come to me in a minute. And he was her favourite chef, actually, when Albert was still alive. It's amazing, actually, isn't it, what is online now? that I did ask that just because I thought it very likely could be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. A sub-theme of that book is also the way that junior female staff had to fend off the approaches from, unwanted approaches from men of much higher status than them. And I, I wondered about writing about that topic in a Me Too era when, obviously, in their times, they regarded it as being just one of the perils of the job. And this book, you're worried about Isabella. Is she going to lose her job by rejecting the approaches or is she just going to have to capitulate to keep her job? How did you handle that? Well, you know, in the era of the Me Too movement, this was a delicate thing to write about, but one I think that was very much on my mind, the fact that if you were a servant girl in those days, you had no power at all. If you didn't comply, you'd lose your job. And if you did comply and you got pregnant, you'd be kicked out anyway. So it was a very unfair situation, but it was one that girls faced all the time, I think, especially the attractive girls. And in fact, and I obviously very re uh, repugnant to a lot of readers. In my new Royal's Finest book, which is called The Last Mrs. Summers, which is a complete spoof on Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, we have the same thing. We have a couple of occasions in which a, a man of higher status has taken advantage of a young girl. And my editor was very concerned about writing about this. And she said, I think you're going to offend a lot of people. And I said, well, it really, really happened. So she made me write um, a foreword in which I say you will find, particularly find one of these characters really repugnant. But this was something that was that happened all the time. And it was up to these girls to really stick up for each other and try and be a safety net for each other at a really bad time. So, you know, it, it is something now that we're very aware of. Yeah, but I think it's good for people to realise what it used to be like too. It probably gives them a little bit more understanding about some of their own family history if they have an appreciation. Yeah. yeah. In some Absolutely. cases, yeah. 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 Look, you've had an amazing career gathering both popular and critical acclaim. What is the thing that in your career achievements has given you the most satisfaction? I mean, I, I noticed that you've got 113,000 followers on BookBub, which is pretty remarkable. And in Farley Field, one of your recent historicals, gathered a whole sleuth of uh, critical acclaim and awards. What's the thing that's given you the most satisfaction? Oh, gosh. First of all, I consider myself very lucky that I've been able to keep on writing as long as I have. You know, so many people I, who were up-and-coming writers at the same time as me wrote really good books and got really good reviews, and suddenly their publisher decided they'd had enough and just dropped them, and they went into oblivion. I've been lucky that I've, you know, I've managed to keep going. I've had good reviews all the time. I've won awards. My sales have been going up, so all of that is really nice. One of the things that I never never crossed my mind earlier, if you'd said to me, well, what's a big satisfaction, is that I get letters all the time from someone who says, your book helped me through chemotherapy. Your book helped me when my mother died. And, of course, this year I've had, your book has helped me to keep going when I've been 
had to shelter in place by myself in this pandemic. Your books have been a great solace to me. And that, that feels wonderful. There was one particular occasion that really touched me. A woman wrote to me and she said, I want you to know that all night I've been listening to one of your Royal Spinest books in my car where I'm watching my house flooding. And um, I wrote to her afterwards and I said, did you lose everything? She said, yes, I had your books in before, but the, everything in the house is gone. And I said to her, well, when you get a new, when you're settled in a new home, write and tell me and, um, and I'll send you a signed copy of each of the books. So she did write and tell me later on, and I sent her a signed copy of each of the books. And then the year after that, I was on book tour and I was in Houston, Texas, and she came up to me and she said, I'm Laurel. And we hugged each other. That was, that was an amazing moment. That, that makes, it's something that never crosses your mind when you start to write. You don't think, you think, oh, I'm writing books that people will enjoy reading. But you don't think I'm writing books that actually might help people. And that's, that's a really good feeling. Mm, that's lovely. Yeah. And for those who might like to discover Royal Spinous Mysteries right now, you did do one that was a Christmas mystery, which I gather is really still very popular every Christmas. Tell us about, the, the was it The Twelve Clues of Christmas? Yeah, The Twelve Clues of Christmas, obviously based, it's a Lady Georgie book at a big country house, and obviously it's based on The Twelve Days of Christmas. It was really fun to write, but really challenging. You know, how am I going to kill somebody with geese? <laughs> so each, each day somebody dies in a way that ties in with the song and you don't realize this to start with and then I hope I want the reader to go long before Georgie does wait wait isn't this something to do with the 12 days of Christmas um so it was a fun book to write and it you know it's been quite popular and now I've been asked to write another Christmas book so I'm just starting out writing that one too the new one's going to be called God Rest Ye Royal Gentlemen, which might indicate that there's a few royal gentlemen who are going to come onto the pages of this book. <laughs> Perhaps some of them as dead bodies. <laughs> we may be, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're now splitting your time between California and Arizona when you're not travelling the world doing your research. Tell us how you organise your life around those two points. Well, we now go to Arizona in the winters because the winters where I live in California, normally it's quite wet and cold. I have friends who live in places like Minnesota who'd laugh their heads off when I say it's cold, but it's cold for me. Um, very similar to New Zealand sort of temperatures, you know, when it's wet and dreary sometimes. Yes. So we bought a house in Arizona. We have a daughter in Arizona, so it's lovely to be close to those grandchildren as they've been growing up. We go there for the winter months. And one of the reasons that I like going there is my life isn't quite as involved there, so I can have peace and quiet just to sit and write. And we live in a place that's surrounded by mountains, and so I have these lovely views out of the window. And I really we love walking in the lovely sunshine and fresh air every day, and it, it's a great escape in the winter. Yeah. Um, were you affected by the fires in California recently? Well, the nearest fire was about 20 miles from us, so we weren't actually in danger this time. But the air quality was just awful. We had two days when you needed all the lights on at midday and the sky was this bright orange. It was the most spooky thing you've ever seen. And we couldn't go outside for several days to do our walks because the air quality was in the dangerous levels. Everything smelt of smoke. Um, luckily, I was able to get an air purifier online for my bedroom, so I had that running day and night. But um, we have a daughter who lived within two miles of the fires, so I was worried for her. 
Yeah. Terrible to have that poor air quality when also COVID's around as well. Mm. It is, yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. Look, turning to Reese's reader, we've still got it as the joys of binge reading. We still like to recommend and introduce people to books that they may not be aware of to try. Who are you reading at the moment and who would you recommend? Well, it's, the funny thing is that uh, other, write, other writers that I recommend are people who are my friends. I don't know which bit came first, but Louise Penny is a very good friend. And of course, her, her new book has just come out, All the Devils Are Here. And uh, all of her series with Gamache in Quebec, absolutely wonderful books. My friend Deborah Crombie has a series set in England with uh, a married couple of detectives in, in the police force. And her latest one called A Bitter Feast was all about a Cotswolds and a wonderful restaurant there. So I really enjoyed vicariously visiting the Cotswolds in that. The book I've just, in, just finished and enjoyed was called Paris is Always a Good Idea. And it's about, it's a complete romp about a young woman who's been a career woman and suddenly decides she's given up her whole whole life for this career and goes off to rekindle the romances of her youth in Ireland, in Paris, in, in Italy. So it's just a lot of, very light, a lot of fun and just the sort of thing I can handle with this pandemic because I don't know about you in New Zealand, but here in America well, where the pandemic is still so very frightening, we still have huge numbers and uh, you worry about going out and the people who won't wear masks and all this sort of thing. So I find you're keeping fear at bay a lot, which means I just don't want to tackle books that I normally would that have violence, that have too much darkness in them. I have to have something that's light and cheerful at the moment because that's all I can handle. Yeah. How do you set up your working day? What's your working process? Do you have certain hours that you sit at your computer or how do you do that? Yeah, I, I you know, I'm professional writer I write two books a year I don't have time to wait for the muse to flutter onto my shoulder <laughs> so no I, I I'm quite a morning person I wake up quite early and then I read my emails and things these days my day has been eaten into because we've been taking too long walks because we obviously can't go out as much so we have an, a morning walk and then I go down and I do my writing and when I'm doing a, a first draft I have to I've given myself to write five pages a day. So I have to do that much. And that depends. Sometimes I do that in two hours. Sometimes it takes me three, four, five. But I will not let myself stop for the day until I've done my five pages. And I have to go all the way through till I finish the first draft. Then I can go back and I can do polishing and editing and things. And I don't feel the pressure as much because I know I've got something down on paper. And then in the afternoon, I find out there's a lot of sort of secretarial work that someone will someone will want me to answer questions for a blog, someone will want me to set up this and that, you know, so there's lots of these smaller things. And, and of course, I'm a member of a blog called Jungle Red Writers, which is a fabulous group of women. And we, you know, we have to write these blogs all the time. So there's, there's a lot of sort of busy work as well as my writing work that I have to do every day. Mm -hmm. So your five pages a day, how many words would that translate into? About 1,500. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Mm, that's great. So what are your projects for the next 12 months? Tell us what you're working on now. Uh, well, I've just finished a book that I absolutely loved writing. Um, it's set in Venice, which is one of my favourite places, and it's called The Venice Sketchbook. And it's another of these books, like The Tuscan Child that I wrote, that is set in different time periods. This one's set in three different time periods, 
and it has to do with finding out uh, about some person's secret life that nobody's known about. So there's a sort of book I love to read where you're going between two, two people's stories and you're getting a little bit of one and then you get a little bit of the other and, and, and one furthers the other all the time. So they're really fun to write. So the Venice Sketchbook, it comes out in April in America. I don't know when it will come out with you. But if you see the cover, if you can go on Amazon and see the cover, it has the best cover I've ever seen in my life. My goodness, if you saw this across an airport, you'd rush and buy it because it's such a <laughs> gorgeous cover. And then, and then my second book for the year will be The New Royal Spinus that I'm just starting to work on called God Rest Ye Royal Gentlemen. And that will come out in time for Christmas in November, I believe. Great. You mentioned The Tuscan Child. That has had quite remarkable international success, hasn't it? This has been my best-selling book to date. I think it's sold 750,000 copies in print, but that's not counting the audio. And also in all these different languages, you know, I, I get these covers from Bulgaria and Lithuania and all these places you think, you try and imagine people sitting and reading The Tuscan Child in the middle of Syria or somewhere or China. It's quite quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is remarkable. So where can people find you online? You've got an international audience. How can they find you? Well, the easiest way is to go to my website, which is reesbowen.com. And um, on there, there is a, a little button to click on to email Reese. And you can also sign up for my newsletter that way, where you get news from me all the time. If you want to know my day-to-day news, like what I had for breakfast and all that sort of thrilling stuff <laughs> and how I do my how I do my laundry, you can go on to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com and then it's slash Respo in author. And I do post on that almost every day, sometimes quite trivial, sometimes quite thoughtful, but it's, it's my daily news, news and musings, I suppose. I'm also on Twitter and I'm on Instagram, both of which I haven't quite seen the the, uh, the reason for, but I'm, my publishers tell me to do it, so I obey. <laughs> It's remarkable. So you really post on Facebook quite regularly. That's terrific. Yeah, pretty much every day, I think. And I, you know, another thing, they're talking about doing some, something good. I realised early during this pandemic that there were a lot of people who were my readers, women who were my readers, who were stuck in sheltering in place and they were on their own and they were lonely. Mm. So I, I started doing an awful lot of, you know, very trivial discussions on my Facebook, like, Oh, it's now. Now it's autumn. I'm going to start to make soups. What's your favorite soup to make? And then I get 200 replies in an hour. Like I make this, I make that. And then, oh, what's your favorite com- comfort movie at the moment? And people love to be part of that. So I've been doing that very regularly. Sounds very canny, actually. <laughs> yeah. People obviously, your readers obviously feel close to you. Uh, the people on Facebook really feel that they're my friends. I mean, which they are in a way, but you know, if I wrote on Facebook, oh, I cut my finger today, I can guarantee that in an hour I've got a dozen people volunteering to type my manuscripts for me. (laughs) (laughs) That's lovely. Well, look, Reese, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to talk again, and I look forward to these new books next year. The Venice uh, sketchbook sounds wonderful. We'll wait for it with bated breath. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jenny. Bye. Bye. Oh, thank you. I'm so sorry to have put you through that. <laughs> now, can I honestly take your your mailing address to get some New Zealand wine to you? Because I really absolutely. would would like no, to make necessary. sure that I say thank you. No, absolutely not necessary. By the time you pay for the postage on it and everything, it's really 
I, I, I will drink. I will drink in your honor, but you don't need to send it. So oh, that's I, sweet. These, these things happen. Listen, I when I was in Australia, when I was getting married, I, we, I was living in Sydney, and um, uh, I was sharing a, a flat with a woman who was a premier uh, radio broadcaster for, for um, ABC. I was working with ABC at the time, and she volunteered to record my whole wedding. At the end of the wedding, she realized she hadn't turned the recorder on, so that happened to her. So. <laughs> Oh, I don't feel so bad now. <laughs> yeah, everybody made the joke that John had bribed her not to turn it on, so she, so we had no, no witness to the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Reese. The the recording is still going, so we got that last little story, which is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Jenny. I'll, I'll talk thank, to you again. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Finch Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.